listening to the CIPD podcast series. Hello and welcome to the latest CIPD podcast. I'm Philippa Lamb and in this programme I'm joined by an impressive panel of senior HR professionals from around the world. We caught up when the CIPD took Britain's turn to host the World Federation of People Management Association's World Congress in London. A new global survey from the Boston Consulting Group examining the global challenges facing HR gave us a starting point for our conversation. The survey questioned nearly 5,000 people in 83 countries and it asked about the issues likely to be affecting HR in the coming decade. My guests for this programme are Rainer Strack from the Boston Consulting Group in Germany, Arne Nanda, who's Senior Vice President of HR at Tata Communications Limited in India, part of the seemingly all-consuming Tata Group, Andreas Gollen, Senior Vice President of Corporate HR at E.ON Group in Germany. And finally, Susan Meisinger, who's President and CEO of the Society for Human Resource Management in the United States. I started by asking Reiner for a summary of the key issues and challenges for the future identified in the Boston Consulting Group's report. In a nutshell, to summarise what are the key things that HR faces over the next couple of years, is a simple triangle between strategy metrics and HR. Now there are actually two broken links in this triangle. HR, what we see, looking at these 4,700 answers, are not, is not really strategic in a lot of uh, companies and it's also not really uh, very analytical. So there's not a real link between HR and the strategy department and not a real link between HR and numbers and metrics and analytics. What were the other key challenges that emerged in the study? We looked into, as I said, 17 topics. Now, if you uh, just prioritize these 17 topics um, by using two dimensions. One, the capability of HR based on these 4,700 answers and also on the future importance of this topic. Then there are eight topics that emerge as most important and where HR says there's still a lot to do. And these eight topics are talent management as the key overarching topic top or near the top of the agenda in almost every country, leadership development, very link, uh, closely linked to talent management, then demographics, managing an aging workforce, one of the key challenges, at least in the Western world, then work-life balance, managing work-life balance. That was a big surprise to us, so that uh, people are not looking only at a paycheck at the end of the month. They would like to have much more, a meaningful workplace. And then there's a lot of discussion about globalization. How can HR support globalizing a company? Then there was the topic of lifelong learning, in particular if you have an aging workforce. So um, one example, a German bank has more than 20% of its employees above 50, but only 1% of its uh, training and development investments in those people. There is still a mismatch between investments in training and development and lifelong uh, learning experience. And finally, there's one topic, transforming HR into a strategic partner, where a lot of people say HR is not yet there. So they don't have a real strategic perspective. They don't really have a business perspective. So there's a lot to do in particular in this dimension. Nanda, obviously a lot to think about there, but I'm interested in this point that talent management emerged as a really key issue almost across the board, across industries, across all regions. Did that surprise you, given the current economic situation? I wonder whether perhaps that might suggest there would be less emphasis on talent management. 
Uh, well, actually, uh, I mean, I don't think it surprised us, but the uh, scale of uh, uh, shortage that we're experiencing has been quite phenomenal. I mean, we, we knew that we would experience talent shortage, but if you really look at the, uh, the way the economy is growing and the sort of uh, new players coming into the market, the requirements have, they have considerably grown up. And it is across all levels of layers of management and across all industry segments. So that's what we're experiencing. Um, and what are the strategies that you think need to be in place to, to cope with that problem? Uh, the uh, two things which we have identified that seems to be keen is one, uh, you need to have uh, an, a very engaged employee with you. And uh, we realize that uh, engagement does not just mean that the boss goes and smiles at him every morning. I mean, that's just one part of the engagement. But more importantly, that he needs to see a value and meaning in himself and in his career, which happens not just by the task that he's doing today, but how does he get prepared for the task that he can do tomorrow? And that's one very key important thing that we identified as an engagement uh, issue. And the second uh, aspect that really helps uh, in terms of looking at is that a lot of people uh, are today looking at uh, taking on global leadership positions. And uh, if you have an opportunity within your organization where instead of recruiting somebody from outside, you're willing to experiment with somebody from within, even though he may not have the entire uh, in, uh, skills and competencies that you need, but the sort of passion that he puts into the assignment by giving him the opportunity is phenomenal. And we have realized that uh, if we have been subject to whatever are the immigration requirements and employment practices across our various countries in which we operate, as far as possible, we are trying to encourage this as a movement to ensure that, one, we encourage and build a body of uh, globally experienced managers. And second, more importantly, it helps us in our retention strategies. I mean, these are two things that we're trying to address. Now, Sue, obviously you're based in the US. What are the big upcoming HR issues there? Well, I think the ongoing challenge of talent, even though the economy is softening and the unemployment rate is rising, we're still at a low unemployment rate by historic terms. And so um, employers are still experiencing skill shortages. While there may be some increase in some industries, auto workers in the United States, for example, in healthcare, it's difficult to find people. I think the other overarching um, consideration for the profession in the U.S. is the upcoming elections. Uh, regardless of who the new president is, the expectation is, is that it'll be a more regulated environment, that there will be um, some initiatives to legislate in the field of HR and redirecting a lot of attention that had been on strategic issues now back into compliance issues, and that's for me, a concern to the profession. What's that going to mean in practical terms for the practitioners over there? Well, one of the roles of HR is HR delivery, and in the U.S. it's a highly litigious environment, and so risk management plays perhaps a higher um, role for, for HR professionals. The challenge is with new legislation and new risks created by that, that HR not divert all of its attention. You have to pay attention to it but you risk being defined by it, that you're the, you're the compliance cop, you're the person who's always ensuring that you don't go to jail or you're not sued by an employee because, you know, in the United States, the employees are quite, quite likely to sue. And so um, that's a concern because, as, as this research has shown, the need and the importance and the opportunity created for HR to really be engaged in the strategy development of the organization and linking HR to execution, organizational strategy, um, it's a wonderful opportunity and there's going to be a competing demand for attention in the HR delivery, in the HR compliance issue. Um, and so I think that's something to watch in the United States next year. Now, Ryan mentioned this issue of work-life balance being mm -hmm. 
high up the list of priorities to people, almost surprisingly high mm. up the list in some areas. Is that a big one in the States? Well, it was interesting because as I looked at the results of the research, um, for the United States, work-life balance didn't fall into the red zone, which is the, the top top the areas, zone. the keys. Mm. It was very close, but it was not there. I think that is also linked to the regulatory environment. In the United States, our leave policies are unpaid leave. Um, and so the focus and attention for an employer in managing that leave is somewhat different than, for example, in another developed country where it's a paid leave. Um, that's one area that I would be um, expecting legislative um, efforts in the United States the, to become more Europeanized in some of our leave policies. Um, but that's probably why, in the response to the survey from HR professionals, it didn't rise um, to that red zone. Having said that, in conversations with HR practitioners, it's always a subject of conversation. Uh, and it's just the subject of how do you manage a 24-7 environment where everybody is connected all the time and globally. So it's not just connected on weekends. It's connected in the middle of the night. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. Andreas, obviously you're based in Germany. What was the European perspective on this? Are, are we facing the same sort of issues that Sue was just describing, or do we have other challenges? I think in general we have more or less uh, the same perspective and the same problems in, in, in Europe and especially in Germany where I'm based. One, one or two things are different. One is uh, the situation of the unemployment rate. It is in the States decreasing, in, uh, uh, increasing in Germany it's decreasing. It's one uh, difference. And maybe we have one perspective which is a little bit different uh, to handle the and, and, and to cope with the trade unions and the workers' council. And uh, especially in an environment which is more and more difficult also for the people, it's more pressure on the people, uh, I think, all over the world and also in Germany. And to handle this topic with the workers' council is sometimes not so easy to, on the one side, to say, okay, we have to reduce the salaries. It's one situation in Germany. Uh, and to uh, increase the, the working hours. And then on the other side, it's more pressure. And then to, to discuss this with these uh, people is sometimes maybe not special for Germany, but it is a special situation, no question. One of the things that we're seeing in the United States during this campaign is a push by organized labor supporting the Democratic campaign because they're looking forward to labor legislation that will greatly ease their ability to organize a company. Right now in the United States, in the, in the private sector, only 7-8% of the workforce is unionized. And there's a very strong interest on having legislation enacted to sort of um, encourage and make it much easier by not requiring individuals to have a secret ballot election for a union. That if the unions just show cards saying people are interested, the union would be recognized. That will be a dramatic change for many HR professionals in the United States if it becomes law, because so many of HR professionals have never worked with unions. It, it just hasn't been part of the history in the last 15, 20 years for most most industries. So that could be a real challenge. Now, that's interesting. Nana, what's the situation in India? Uh, the, uh, I mean, the manufacturing sector used to be the most uh, stronghold of all the union activities historically. And over the last few years, you actually find, while the manufacturing sector has been growing, the uh, level of unionism has been coming down. Because in order to be competitive, changes have been introduced. And therefore, it's really known. I mean, in fact, no uh, employer relations manager in any manufacturing sector really now, I mean, spends so much of time on industrial relations issues and what probably his, his uh, predecessor did 10 years back. 
that's a change. But very significantly, what we witness is that the services sector is picking up, and the employment in the services sector is growing quite considerably every year. And this becomes a very strong bank, which every political party and every trade union is trying to, I mean, I for. But what is also interesting to watch is that uh, most of the uh, people entering the services sector, there are two types. I mean, there is one which is the knowledge worker. I mean, they are people who are, you have the programmers and developers and people who actually contribute from a very knowledge perspective. And then you have the people who are basically uh, providing support. And you, whether it could be the hospitality industry or in the retail industry, which is also growing, or even the travel and tourism uh, industry. Now, you actually find that there is a, I would say, disinclination of people who are in the knowledge sector in the service industry to actually be associated as being unionized. I mean, they would prefer to be label themselves as being part of management rather than being unionized. So while the uh, I mean, uh, I mean, unions are trying, they're also facing resistance, that the people don't want to be branded as being unionized. So that's one thing that also seems to be developing. That is interesting. Rani, you, you've got the global perspective on this. Was the organisation of labour an issue right around the world, or, or was it very regional-specific? I would say it was regional-specific. i give you one example. If you look at Germany, and the results only for Germany, and capability of HR across these 17 topics, it was higher rated um, than the average European country. And this is also a little bit due to the importance and the power of unions, and also the hierarchy of an HRVP in an organization. In Germany, for example, an HRVP is usually a member of the management board. So HR is not only on the table. Uh, when HR issues are discussed, HR is at the table. And therefore, the power uh, and also the professional attitude, the budgets, etc., are a little bit higher. And this is also at least partly due to the importance of unions um, in the German society. Uh, talking around the importance of different issues in different areas of the world, it, it does very much bring to the forefront of my mind how very difficult it's going to be for HR practitioners within organisations operating cross boundaries to deal with these challenges going forward. Andres, how is this to be done? Because there are obviously very different approaches needed in, in different parts of the world. Looking at, at Eon, we are, um, I think, on, on the way is this the answer, and also in our strategy, we are plan to bring more people abroad and to, uh, uh, to to acquire companies is, is one thing, but uh, then to integrate companies is, uh, is a different thing. And, and for this, you need really experienced managers with also different culture view, with experience in different cultures. And what we are doing is to bring young people abroad because it's really much more easier to bring young people across the border because of the families, the kids, and so on. And so normally, uh, we, we try to do it immediately at the beginning. So one example is we have a graduate program in place at E.ON and normally we um, uh, fill every year 50 young people in, in this program and now we expand this program to 100 or 150 uh, graduates and the idea is uh, it's a two years program and then they have two or three steps in different countries and then they learn immediately the language, the culture and then they are really international uh, internationals for us. To, to that point, I think um, Infosys from India had a program that they put in place. We gave an award to them because they brought in interns from the United States into India to work and sent interns to, to the United States. And they were very focused on having that cross-border at an intern level, which was for us an incredible investment that they were willing to do. But to get the, the, the experience for that individual and the individual exposed to and familiar with the, the Indian company. 
Is this something that Tata's looked at? Yeah, Nanda? Tata's have been doing this uh, across uh, four specific countries. Uh, we have been recruiting from Singapore, from Philippines, from China and US. And I think the average intake is about 70 or so interns every year. And they, these people come into India, spend a period between three months to six months working with one of the companies. Then they go back to the respective regions and be part of the organizations of any of the Tata companies working there. And is that working well? It's working well. We are under the, I think in, in the oldest country, Singapore, we are in the fourth year we are running this program. And I think China, we are in the second year. China and US, we are the second year. And uh, the other countries, the Philippines also, we are, I think, just starting off this year. Ryan, do you think we're going to see more of this? I think the question in my mind is see more of this for companies who would never have thought of doing such a thing in the past because they're just going to have to look abroad to get the talent they need. Yeah, as I said, we looked into 194 action steps. And one of the action steps which has the highest increase over the next 10 years is global recruiting. And uh, to really know at what universities in India, in China, etc., I should recruit, what my marketing campaign is, etc. Because talent is a scarce resort and it's becoming even more scarce over the next couple of years because of the baby boomers who will retire in 10 years. So coming up with a global recruiting um, a strategy for global companies is absolutely a must. And I would say a lot of the global companies don't have such a thing yet in place. What they have are certain development programs. There's one company which we found we had a, a two plus two plus two program. And two means to make a career in this company, they have to be in two subunits, in two different functions, and also in two countries uh, to, let's say, get ahead. So to make some simple rules sometimes work, but then you have to also uh, fulfill these rules and don't uh, um, give exceptions or make exceptions to the rule. Do you think this is going to be a challenge just because of the, 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 the focus and the need to get the, the expatriate experience where there's also pressure on work-life balance? That um, on the one hand, people are expecting and wanting more control over their own life, and yet dealing with a corporate expectation and requirement that they relocate and move elsewhere and, and basically change their life. Yeah, but I, I would say, in retrospect, it looks terrific. So I was also, as uh, in my younger days at BCGs, one and a half years in our Boston office. And my wife still t tells me that was the best time ever in our whole <laughs> life so far. <laughs> so it was a terrific experience, personal-wise and also professional-wise, mm -hmm. these two years, or almost two years. And therefore, at the beginning, you are nervous. A different environment, different mm -hmm. culture, and how could you succeed also in different culture? In retrospect, it was a fantastic experience. And uh, a lot of people, for example, in our company, are looking for this global experience yeah. because we are uh, consulting um, uh, or do consulting with global companies, and therefore you have to have also global experience. On the other side, uh, it, it's really great to bring the people abroad, but on the other side, to reintegrate them after a period of time. This is now our big challenge for the future, because after two or three years, then they have the question, what is Works the next me. step, and back to Germany, and normally then also the question, what's about the next career step? And this is the new problem we have to face. I think the question in my mind, Sue, is what we've just been talking about, huge global companies recruiting overseas and, and the whole expat experience, I think you know, we're familiar with that. What about companies and organisations lower down the tree who just are not on a scale to do that sort of thing? How are they to tackle the issue of getting the people they need? Well, I think what you'll see is um, greater um, 
ease and uh, ability to use the internet. I mean, the, the global search engines that are out there, the accessibility to talent on a global scale is much different now because of technology. And I think you'll see uh, the growth of boutique recruiting firms, where these firms are specialized in helping domestic, whatever domestic it would be, firms locate uh, and access talent in other markets. And I think there will be a growth in that where somebody can can go locally to a firm that can help them reach globally. Um, but I do think it's, it's a challenge. And I think that's one of the reasons you'll see on a very macro level um, more co- the companies becoming bigger and bigger, that there are, will, companies will be gobbling up more companies because the, the size gives them the leverage for the global recruiting. And I think on a macro, you're going to see more and more of that. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. I think it's, it's probably fair to say that US companies are, are perhaps more imaginative than their European counterparts already about targeting particular groups that they're interested in recruiting. I know that Home Depot have gone down that road mm. with looking for older people. How did they go about that? Well, Home Depot, um, their strategy w- was corporate uh, growth of stores. If they're going to grow the stores, then HR has to link that strategy to finding people to, to staff the stores. And so they started to- targeting what are the different applicant pools that they can reach into. And they formed a partnership with uh, the ARP, which is the uh, Association of Retired Persons in the United States, a very large organization with retirees, and uh, created a website where retired persons could express an interest in working for the store. And the interest was so heavy that it crashed the website. Um, They also uh, built an alliance with the military so that they would be standing at the door when a, a soldier left the military and re-entered the workforce, Home Depot was standing there saying, have you considered working in a retail environment and a career with Home Depot? Uh, so it's a very focused um, approach. It was, you know, the strategy was growth of stores, had to staff the stores, how do we link to that strategy? We have to find the bodies. And it, it has been very successful for them. See, Ryan, I think that's very fascinating. I mean, frankly, it's not rocket science, it's just common sense, isn't mm-hmm. it? But, but we haven't seen as much of that sort of entrepreneurialism, I don't think, in, in, in Europe. Uh, would it be fair to say, as perhaps they're exhibiting over the, uh, the I would US. counter-argue here. <laughs> okay, <laughs> by all bit, means. <laughs> uh, because I would say also, in, in particular, of the, the demographic challenge or so, the score, shortage of labor is even perhaps more severe in some countries in Europe. Uh, Germany has their oldest mm-hmm. workforce in uh, all about uh, Europe. And Separate. what I s- see is here is a challenge not only in the traditional executive recruiting market, it's much more in the skilled uh, blue-collar labor market. Indeed, and which we tend to forget about. Completely. And if you look, for example, um, in a job family by job family approach in a, uh, in a company, so to really look where you have a surplus and a shortfall, you have a shortfall also in a lot of blue-collar job families. And there it's about, let's say, how to get the, the next el- electrician and, not on, and also competing a- against global companies. And this would be a, a, gr- a big, big challenge, in particular in s- special uh, job families in certain industrial companies. Well, to, to support what you're saying, um, I have an, a story. I was giving a speech talking to our members in Michigan in the United States, and that's where the auto industry is centered. And in talking to them, what I heard from some was, we've got a problem because we have all these unemployed auto workers. They've got a skill, but it's a skill we can't use any longer. And we have a deep, desperate shortage of healthcare workers. 
Two weeks later, I was in India talking with HR professionals, and they were pointing out the massive level of unskilled workers that they have available, the unemployment rate, and yet they had a shortage of engineers. And I think you, it's a global issue where the fit of the um, skilled workforce or the workforce development efforts of the country may not match the business needs going forward. There, there is a total... Um, government is not keeping up with and um, responsive to the kinds of programs that are in the real world. They're certainly, um, the nature of government is to be too late to the game. And that's part of the challenge that we're spending some time on in the United States, is this notion of workforce development. How do you ensure you've got the workforce of the future? Um, in the United States, the education system is very localized. It's not strong central control. And so local school boards are making decisions about the workforce of the future that they're not necessarily equipped to make. And I think we're going to see a long-term impact from that in the United States. I think on, on the long run, the shortage of uh, well-experienced people is for Europe a bigger problem. Yeah, because we so. have a shortage in natural resources in Europe. So our resources is the human resources, especially the knowledge of the people. Mm -hmm. And um, so my feeling is it's, it's much more easy to train the blue-collar workers than to find, uh, especially today, the engineers. We are looking for thousands of engineers in Germany. And uh, we have no idea where we can find them. We're now looking to South America, Middle East, wherever of the world, to India. In Germany we had 40,000, uh, a shortage of 40,000 engineers last year. Mm -hmm. And in India, I think there were 400,000 graduates in engineering last year. So there's a huge market, let's say, however, tapped mostly from the local companies yet. But some and of those engineering graduates, are they workforce ready? Because no, one of the, the things... Uh, they are academically ready, but not trained to take up work. Yeah. I mean, they need to go through a three months to six months finishing school to actually make them work ready. And the employer provides that. Yes. It's an expense that the employer yes. has to incur. Really, on the long run, it could be also a reason for mergers to mm -hmm. merge with a company with mm -hmm. experience other people. Mm -hmm. You never know. See, this is interesting because it highlights the, the need for global cooperation, doesn't it? Because it's a question of, of moving scarce resources and expertise around to, to fitting the pegs into the holes, isn't it? Well, you don't necessarily need to move the people anymore Indeed. either. It's moving the work, that the workers may be someplace else, that what has historically been done in Germany is no longer done in Germany. And that's a, a major cultural shift. Well, there, there is so much to talk about in this. Well, I'm afraid I must bring it to a close, but what I'd like to do is I'd just like to run around the table and ask all of you what you think in practical terms HR practitioners should be doing right now to prepare them for the challenges we've been talking about over the next 10, 15 years. Sue, can I start with you? Uh, I think HR prof professionals need to understand the business. They need to understand who they work for, what the strategy of the business is, what the strategy is for the long term. If their business does not have a strategy, um, they need to be the leader in, in directing it and encouraging the development of a strategy. But I think the biggest gap that, that I see in the profession, uh, and I think this research confirms, is that HR professionals need to not be a business partner. They need to be part of the business. Nanda. Yeah, I tend to agree that uh, I think, I mean, HR people's involvement of the strategy is very key. But I think equally important is also for them to really look at uh, creating certain actionable models which they can actually start working. Because in HR, I mean, while you may have a plan, you also need to have a contingency. And uh, usually the, the whole pressure comes when you don't have a contingency, then you have to start firefighting. I think that's really where the effort should be put in. Andreas, what's your thought? 
Yeah, I would agree to first to build up an HR strategy and then to align this HR strategy with a group strategy. I think this is most important. And more in particular, also to manage the demographic uh, changes and the employability of the people. Rainer, you've spent a lot of time looking at this. What do you think is the really key step? Yeah, to make this perhaps a little bit more concrete in terms of really linking these two things, HR to strategy and also to analytics, uh, we saw today an example of Daimler. And Daimler did this by really coming up with um, a little bit more sophisticated, sophisticated kind of models in terms of doing strategic workforce planning, looking at how does the workforce develop over the next couple of years, taking into account attrition, taking into account retirement age, and on the other side, coming up with a demand model. So really linking HR in a quantitative way to strategy. So how many people do we need by job family, taking into account growth strategies, productivity increases, etc. And then you know precisely by job family where you have a surplus and where you have a shortfall. And then out of this you can directly come up with your recruiting strategy, with your trainee strategy, training strategy in a much more quantitative way. And this gives HR a complete different kind of reputation in an engineering kind type of environment because it's based on uh, figures and it's linked in a quantitative way to strategy. That I think is the point at which we'll have to leave it. But thank you all very much indeed for sharing your expertise with us today. We much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. A fascinating quick tour of global HR issues there. While there appear to be a large number of common issues, there are also clearly some differences in emphasis in the challenges facing you, depending where in the world you're operating. Thanks for listening. To find out more about the people taking part in our discussion and the topics raised, go to the notes that accompany the programme at cipd.co.uk slash podcasts. If there are issues raised in the podcast that you'd like to discuss, remember CIPD members can carry on the discussion online at cipd.co.uk slash community and we would love to hear your thoughts. Listen in next month when we'll be taking a look at leadership. What is it and what can we in HR be doing to nurture or deliver it? I'll be talking to organisations as diverse as Nokia and the Metropolitan Police to find out some of the answers. For now, though, goodbye and thanks for listening. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.